they don't yeah sorry just mm-hmm. one second there's like a motorcycle that was oh it's okay yeah making my side of the thing light up and i'm like oh no i do not want that to be interrupting you while you talk so i'm just gonna interrupt you it's okay i'm I'm just harboring a lot of inner resentment and it's gonna okay it's gonna <laughs> we can work out that out yeah just yeah. listen through this yeah <laughs> you. I, for one, hope you are doing phenomenal. I'm your host, Jalen, and welcome back to Retrospection Connection, where we take a more critical look back at TV and movies that left their mark on us in a formative moment of our lives. Allow me to serve as your guide as we take a look back at today's chosen piece of media. In this installment of Retrospection Connection, I venture into a genre that I typically avoid with the 2006 classic animated horror film, Monster House. I'm joined by my new friend, and might I add, extremely talented visual artist, Victor, aka Taco VHS on Instagram. Growing up, I was pretty quick to assume that the sole aim of quote-unquote scary movies was to freak me out to the point where I didn't even feel comfortable turning off the light at night. And while that's definitely the case for some media in the horror genre, I'm learning that the meaning and impact has the potential to extend far beyond what I initially imagined. Monster House tackles grounded themes that everyone has the capacity to relate to, like grief, growing up, and living in the present. It's certainly given me a lot to think about, and I hope it's able to do the same for you. Of course, follow Retrospection Connection on Instagram at Retrospection Connection, and email me at retrospectconnect2001 at gmail.com with shows that you'd like to hear discussed, or if you'd like to be featured yourself. Enjoy! Why, hello there, everyone. I am joined by one of my newer friends and somebody that when I initially met them, I was immediately wanting to know them a little bit more and, and sort of peer into their mind and, and understand who they are on a different level. And one of my favorite ways to do that is by learning what sort of media people really enjoy and what shaped them at a formative time of their lives, hence this podcast. So I'm very pleased to have my guests introduce themselves, speak to our origin story, whatever that might be, just a little bit. And also tell us something creative that you're you're doing right now, whether that be to tap into an earlier version of yourself or just where you're at now. Talk to us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Victor. I don't openly say my name, but I'll say it here. I go by uh, Taco VHS. I'm a very creative person. I'd like to deem myself so. And uh, yeah, it's nice being on the on the cast, so to speak. So thank you for having me. I do remember that party. Everyone was uh, having a crazy time. The whole bunch of stuff going on, and I brought apples to apples. And uh, you know, I went I went hard on that. You know, like uh, teaching everybody. And we also played some Carcassonne, if that's how it's pronounced. We have to ask Eli since he actually studied French. <laughs> like, yeah, I know too. Like in that like time, it was a like a very short, but appeared to me as a nice um, gentleman. Uh, I guess uh, you seem like a great person. You know, Thank I don't know. You. If, 
I'm not super into poetics, but um, yeah, it was a it was a really really fun time, and uh, it was really great great time to spend with everybody. As in something creative, um, I've been working on some stuff on Taco VHS, and uh, I've been making. Some would say custom tapes, others would say bootleg tapes, but I'd prefer custom video game soundtrack tapes. I'm working on Sonic 2 right now, working on Mario Galaxy. I'm going to post about them. My girlfriend's been telling me to do this for a very long time, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to make her proud. Pretty much every day that I'm not working, I'm trying to do something creative. And that's why when you're watching like TV or movies, or specifically me, I really like animated movies, you know? It's just like peering into the mind of another person, like seeing a world that they're able to create and in a sense, believe it is just so, so relaxing, but yeah. also so thought provoking. It's one of those things that like when you grow up surrounded in media, you kind of just take it for granted, or at least I can say that I usually do that the threshold for making a story, not only entertaining, but also believable and feeling lived in and like the world is fully fleshed out. Like it's, it's really higher than I think I ever fully consider. So I definitely share that same appreciation for it as, as you do. And I, I'll be looking for that a little bit more, but I, I'm so glad that you could be here, Victor. Thank you for uh, sharing your name. I didn't know that that was a, a thing that you're usually less comfortable doing. So I appreciate you coming on as Victor. And I just want to mention for the audience, Taco VHS, that's your Instagram. Victor has some really cool content there. Personally, something that I like never would have imagined, like being as cool and as aesthetically pleasing as it is. Uh, but I was just taking a look at it earlier this week and I had to comment. I really do. I had to break my anonymity and say something because I just thought it was really epic, the, some of the stuff that you're doing. And you mentioned that it's been taking you a little while to get to this point of bringing it to fruition. So I said this off air and I'll say it here. I'm, I'm very proud of you for getting to this point with your creativity to where you're able to not only produce it, but put it out there for other people to experience and share in it with you. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you, Jalen. And, you know, I really got to say as well to everyone listening right now, you guys may not know, but Jalen also has been working on something for a really long time. I think you guys should check it out. It's called Retrospection Connection. I'm not ready for people to know about it yet. It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a, little, it's a little project I'm working on. Thank you for uh, the free publicity. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you guys check it out if you haven't already. <laughs> I hope you are checking it out. If it, this yeah. is somewhere else, please let me know. We may have an issue on our hands. But <laughs> with that being said, I always like to ask my guests before we get into the specifics of the film that we're talking about, which is Monster House one that I watched when I was younger, and I'm really excited to revisit some of the themes and concepts as well as how it relates to our lives now. Um, but I wanted to ask you first, how would you describe your relationship to popular culture and popular media growing up? Do you feel like it was in stride with a lot of uh, other kids your age at that time? Or what do you think was maybe unique about your experience with it? Oof, that's tough. I mean, I feel like there's not really a good way for me to answer this without sounding very stuck up, you know? And I'll, I'll give my perspective. Um, for a lot of stuff, a lot of like, uh, how would you say, pop culture, pop media, I have been under a rock, as most would say. I am not super into it. Like, I've never been into it as like a, as a kid from now. I mean, I watch movies, I watch TV, you know? 
like uh, I liked The Simpsons. That's a huge pop icon. I listen to like music and stuff. I like stuff like kids would like fucking Sonic, Mario, stuff like that. In terms of like pop culture, I've never been in tune with it. And it's not mm-hmm. saying like that's not coming from the perspective of Ugh, pop culture. <laughs> Like I'm above that, like uh, the, those dregs, you know, it's like, no, yeah. it's just that for, it just doesn't click with me. I don't listen to a lot of popular music, you know, I don't really go out to watch a lot of new movies. The only time I really watch movies is with my girlfriend and it's a, it's a bonding experience with her. It's like probably the most pop culture thing I'm going to do is maybe seeing Barbie and Oppenheimer sometime soon in the near future, (laughs) you know, but it's like when I was a kid, I was never really um, relating to a lot of people around me. I'd only relate to like a small group of people and mainly around video games. For example, my whole high school friend group has been tight knit because of video games and when we tried to bond over movies or film, I would be in the room and I would be zoning out. <laughs> yeah. You know, when Moon Knight was like the brand new thing and when the Spider-Man films were the brand new thing or when they were discussing the Witcher like uh, TV series or talking about any of that stuff, I would just be in another world just sitting there and making my snide remarks uh, when I could. <laughs> It's definitely not a feeling of betterment. I do not feel better than other people. I, and I feel like that is a very um, slippery slope that people can find themselves in that is very self-destructive. When you think that you're better than everyone else, it's like, of course you're not better than everyone else. There's a huge magnitude of people that probably enjoy something that you don't enjoy and that's fine and they should just enjoy it, you know? And I can enjoy the stuff I like and we could talk about it. I could try to add into it, but I really don't like the whole, oh, you know, you watch uh, Family Guy. I watch Hank of the Hill. Hank of the Hill. <laughs> and it's just like when I've been in those situations, it's it's mainly just like I got to wait for the time where it's my time, you know, like, of course, it's like I'm left out, but it's because I'm not into it and there's nothing wrong with that. There's other things you could relate on, on the fact that everyone else is just a really good person and that you enjoy their company. But yeah, and biggest thing is music, you know, because I am not really in tune with popular music. My girlfriend is way more. We we have like similar music interests, but different and different in very important ways where she loves The Weeknd, 21 Savage, as well as, you know, the popular punk hits of like Bad Religion and stuff like uh, New Order and just like a whole plethora of music. And I'm the guy that likes folk and rock ballads. An album that I've been listening to for a good while is Electrical Elephant by Fishboy. A quick aside, Fishboy is an artist that is mainly in kind of like a pop rock kind of folk where those intermix, intermingle. And the band mainly tells stories through songs that are usually disconnected, but are all related and meet at the end. Magnum opus of theirs, or, you know, the best example is Weights Giving. And it tells a great story about being a creative, about doubting yourself and the regret that comes with it and a long life lived without pursuing what makes you happy the results of that and how you can mend it i'm exposing myself here 
<laughs> for liking this kind of uh there's a t- term for it like uh like hokey vocals okay well look i like that you like what you like and i think that that shines through your personality and your aura and i can definitely relate to what you were saying a little bit earlier about being turned off by that sort of higher than thou or holier than thou energy when it comes to like hearing about what other people like or what they enjoy I'm very new to the sort of like media analysis, media criticism space, and I try to be very intentional about that, you know, coming from an appreciative, understanding sort of place when it comes to talking about these TV shows and movies, because it's like, these were important pieces of media. They may still be important pieces of media to that person, and that's enough, if you ask me, to take it seriously and you know, treat it with the respect that it deserves. I totally hear you there, and I will be checking out Fish Boy. Thank you for the recommendation, and I'm sure the audience thanks you as well. I hope so. I really don't want to give bad suggestions. <laughs> if you do, it, it is what it is. They'll, they'll move on. They're, they're a fickle audience, you know. Yeah, you better accept it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, are we, are we ready to get into it? You're the boss, man. <laughs> All right. I got to ask, you know. <laughs> Okay, I like to begin by giving a basic premise for the movie, and then I'm going to ask your thoughts on it, because I always like to know, is it complete? Is there something missing from this synopsis that we should maybe add? So here we go. Three teens discover that their neighbor's house is really a living, breathing, scary monster. That is the whole synopsis. That is what I got from IMDb. (laughs) Uh, Initially, I was like, oh, okay, this is this is it cool very bare bones if you ask me but we're here because this is a movie that you have a personal connection to so i want to ask you is there something that we'd be remiss to not mention for the sake of the audience yeah i mean i feel like that's like the the spark notes version of the of the film just like there's a house and it's a monster but i feel like it's a film of discovery it's a film of remorse you know and dealing with guilt i feel like it would be like three teens coming to terms with maturing and getting older while discovering you know the the spooky spooky monster house and Mm -hmm. uncovering like a painful mystery surrounding like their neighbor that discovery i feel like the human aspect of the house is very, very, very important. Well, initially what I'm thinking of when you're giving me all that extra context, which I think is very well said and certainly feels more of a relevant description for the movie, but I'm thinking, so this movie came out in 2006. Could you just tell me, you don't have to give me the specific age that you were, but like a time period for for where you were age-wise when this movie came out? I was probably, and I'm going to use my biggest brain uh, cells right here i was probably an early teenager when i was watching the film <laughs> like okay. i mean like preteen, you know got you yeah which is <laughs> the age of the the kids in the movie which i think is like really cool that you got to check it out at that time i was a little bit younger so it was at a slightly different place than where the, the central characters were but i asked that because i feel like the description that you just gave about three preteens coming to terms with themes of grief and loss and acceptance of that loss and moving forward. 
that really captures my attention as an adult. But I don't know that that would have gotten me as a kid. I'd have been like, uh, what is grief, first of all? Do I want to learn it from Monster House? I'm scared, first of all. Um, <laughs> so like all of these little things that would come up. But I think you're absolutely correct that this story at its core has a little bit less to do with the supernatural elements and more to do with the human experience and what it means to have to give something or someone up and keep trudging along despite those losses. Those themes in particular definitely touched me when I was watching the movie in a way that I didn't expect because I haven't seen this movie in 15 years and I did not think it was going to come so hard with some of those themes. So very much so looking forward to getting into those things with you. I've got to say, I'm really fascinated with sort of dissecting this movie with you and specifically its impact on you and, and why you felt like it was relevant to discuss on Retrospection Connection, since you were letting us know that media consumption, as far as TV and film goes, is not necessarily your thing. It's not something that you gravitate towards as much as like playing video games or music or things like that. So I'd be really interested to know why has Monster House become a staple for you? Why is it something that you wanted to talk about with me on this show? Talk to me about your journey with this film. Yeah, um, I never saw Monster House in theaters. It was a pretty much a straight-to-DVD experience for me. And honestly, watching it the first time around as a kid, I was just kind of enamored by the idea alone, the concept, mm -hmm. the IMDb description. And um, funny enough, we still have a lot of stuff in our garage from like a, a big move that we did. A lot of uh, trinkets, doodads, and memorabilia from our lives that we just still have to go through, sift, and see what to keep and what not to keep. And we found a little treasure trove of a whole bunch of sketches and doodles that I've done as a kid. And the monster house was like two out of the however many drawings of Sonic and Pac-Man, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, it was mainly just because I was so in love with the idea, a living house, the you know design, the artwork, you know, like that was something that really captured my interest. And that was something that I would like to draw. Well, not to interrupt you, but yeah. I, I do want to ask, it seems like drawing and animation is really important to you. How long have you been doing that? What do you usually like to draw? I've, uh, I've been drawing uh, since I was a single digit, I think. I won't be able to tell you when, because <laughs> as I'm sure, as will be revealed further in this podcast, I am not good with my memory. <laughs> like, I, could, I have a foggy memory of almost everything. So I can't give you like a huge breakdown, but I've been drawing for a really, really long time. To start off, I've been drawing the stuff that I've just been interested in. And that started with Sonic because that was the first game I played. And of course I became obsessed with it like an idiot. And I tried to do stuff like sell like my own Sonic bookmarks at like at elementary mm -hmm. school. I would like be obsessed with drawing those characters, never making my own. Thankfully I didn't fall down that rabbit hole, but um, <laughs> drawing artwork has been something that's been important to me, at least as a hobby for my entire life and i don't think i'm ever gonna stop drawing you know yeah and, and so it means something extra special that some of those monster house drawings made it in to the cachet of all the the sonic and, and things like that right yeah and i think it's purely just because of how unique it was especially like in the time and 
up to this point because I don't think a movie has been made that really captures the same like feeling. Like I love artwork. That's why I love animated movies. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna just put that out there with the way that the artwork was made for um, Monster House, the technique, the motion capture. You know everything about it is just so nice. The fact that yeah. each model that you see in the film was modeled in clay and then mapped over, made a 3D model, and then digitally painted the textures to make a completely claymation-looking 3D animation style. And then wow. all of the actors acting with the freaking, the, the oh, little, little tiny balls, you know, the balls, yeah. yeah. And like mm -hmm. acting out the scenes and like you see some of the behind the scenes footage of this like film, everything about it contributes to the dreamlike, off-putting, warm but scary nature to it. And like that was something that I've, you know, I may not have had the words to describe it, you know, when I was younger, but that was something that I enjoyed 100%. I would not have fully considered the level of detail and thought that was put into the animation process for this. But I will say that when I initially was in my rewatch for this movie a few weeks ago, I noticed like how beautiful it is. It looks like claymation, but it's like a little bit more sleek feeling than what I'm used to. I'm thinking of those, that movie series, what is it called? It's like Wallace and Gromit or something like that. Oh, you get they, it, Wallace and Gromit. Yeah, right. They do stop motion sort of animation too. I, I'm really not good with the terms, but that's really breathtaking as well. But it seems like Monster House took it one step further, just the way it, it seems so flowy. But they also use that sort of stop and start sensibility, like in, in the way that it moves and that it looks aesthetically. It, it's really pleasing, I have to say. Absolutely. I think... Um... The best way to describe it, the biggest American stop motion animators today would be Laika, the creators mm. of like Box Trolls, Paranorman, Coraline, you know, Wallace and Gromit, that, um, uh, I think it's Ard Ardman, Ardman Animations, that is like full on claymation all the way. And then they introduced, you know, like uh, digital special effects elements. Monster House was a departure from that by starting with clay and then moving fully digitally. And I feel like uh -huh. right now, Leica is like the fusion of the two, where it's all of the animation is stop motion, but they use so much digital and special effects to create a similar type of dream-like feel. I mean, all the keyboard warriors out there can, you know, like correct us, you know, and say, you don't know what you're talking about. I just think that Monster House took it in a very different way, kind of like the Polar Express route. I'll say that one that one does kind of freak me out a little yeah. bit, but it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> they they took it a different way and to make the oddities and the quirks work very well. Well, yeah, that be, that brings me to my next sort of sub question though for you. Like what do you think the particular way that Monster House approaches stop animation like what do you think that adds to it? How does it move the needle forward in that particular art form from stuff like Wallace and Gromit? And how does it stand alongside its peers of, of movies that are doing similar work to it? I think that the important thing to keep in mind with Monster House 
as opposed to its peers, like I would say Polar Express, or there's a very famous, awful movie called Mars Needs Moms. <laughs> Do you know? I've heard about that yeah. one. I think I like watched a video essay on how it was just like a major flop. I, I yeah. remember seeing commercials for it as a kid. Mm -hmm, exactly. The thing that Monster House does, which the other ones didn't, is that it fully committed to a stylized reality. While Polar Express and Marzini's Moms, they ventured too far into the uncanny valley. Uh, where like the, the animation felt what a little bit too real or... or... Yeah, it's just like... Uh, Monster House is not stop motion, it's motion capture. That's like the main distinction because it's all motion capture. There's no moving little bits and pieces, you know, here and there like Wallace and Gromit, like like box trolls, like Coraline, you know. But yeah. Monster House leans into a stylized reality and because of that you don't notice how weird motion capture looks. You know, and that's the most important thing. If you don't notice it, then it works with it. And with Polar Express, there's a, there's a very weird blending of cartoony animation and realistic looking like movement that it comes off as uncomfortable. Same thing with Martini's Moms. That's the pitfall that Monster House avoided. Interesting. Yeah, because we alluded to it a little bit earlier, but there's a reason why Polar Express is a meme these days. And it's because, firstly, it's funny, but secondly, it's like, wildly uncomfortable and for a lot of us that like aren't plugged into the animation space like it's really hard to articulate why we really just do not fuck with that movie like in any meaningful way i think people have a nostalgic attachment to it but the merits of the actual like animation quality i don't think most people in our generation really ride for it all that much and there's just something irking about it and so i'm learning a lot as you're talking about it so you, you mentioned, too, like a stylized reality that Monster House leans into. And just watching the movie a few times at this point, like, I think I have an understanding of what you're saying, but I want to know more specifically, like, what are you getting at with, with that phrase? And how does Monster House successfully lean inward and channel that in a really good way? The most important thing when you're making something that isn't real is being able to forget that it's not real, you know? So like a suspension of disbelief. Exactly. The world that Monster House shows you does not make sense. When you try to think of it in real like terms, like how come the house only animates itself once there's no adults? When we know for certain, especially on a night such as Halloween, when there's people crawling everywhere that they didn't see a huge house going about or the house didn't see them and stop. There's those little holes like in that reality, but what it presents to you, you can suspend your disbelief. It doesn't try to do too much in terms of over explaining its world. And it lets you, how do you say it? It lets you lull your inner doubt and just kind of accept what's being shown. And what's being shown is a deeply real and human experience because of that it works and the reality that it creates works. I don't know if that sounds like a bunch of fluff and like, you know, big words for whatever reason, but that's how I feel. I have to agree with you. First of all, fluff is like my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> Give me a ball of fluff and I'll be happy for the rest of my life. 
But I, I hear what you're saying. There were moments in the movie, like, for example, if one of the kids was, like, getting sucked in by the monster house or something like that. I was like, nobody's hearing this? Like, nobody's, like, coming outside and being like, hey, what the hell is happening? There's a child shrieking for their lives right now. Like, what is happening? Like, little moments like that would definitely, like, get my attention. But I think it's a testament to the quality of the movie that I, I still got through it and I enjoyed it. There's like a recurrent theme in a few of the episodes that I've done so far. Those movies that have either otherworldly settings or feature a premise that is not realistic in any sense of the word, in a weird way allows you to connect to the grounded human stories that are being told in a really cool way. I think every guest has a different interpretation of like why that is. But if I were to ask you, why do you think such an absurd premise works so well to tell such a realistic story, what would your answer be? I think for all of existence, you know, for as long as humans have been around, we've loved stories. I think storytelling and uh, passing down knowledge through the verbal or the written, or I guess the scene now, you know, because you could just consume just by seeing. We've been some would say recounting the true acts of what happened or some would say putting some spice in there to make it interesting so mm -hmm. it's like mythos creatures ghouls and goblins a variety of little things that mean more than what they are it's just something that we've always been in love with and by stepping outside of our own reality and removing ourselves from ourselves we're able to look back into the void, as one might say, and begin to see things as they are. That's why fiction is so important. And that's why stories are multi-million dollar businesses, because it's just something that we love. I just think that stuff that is out of this world, the stuff that we don't understand, us trying to understand that in the themes and the metaphors that are presented to us helps us understand ourselves. Ooh, oh my gosh. What'd you say towards the beginning of this recording? You're like, I'm not very good with my words. Please bear with me. That was probably the most beautiful thing I think I've ever heard in my life. So I'm gonna have you retract that statement. Thank you. I was talking about my memory and plus I wrote that down. I have it on the back of my hand, right? <laughs> just re it. Yes, I see it, guys. It's on there. It's all smudged yeah. and gross. I now. looked it up on oh. google.com. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, it's really, you know, I hate to put too much sauce on it, but I think it's mildly profound, what you just said. Our efforts to understand something that is seemingly so far removed from ourselves and where we're at and who we are as a people allows us in a roundabout way to understand ourselves better because we're inevitably sort of pulling from the lenses that we have at our disposal. Wow. I just, I never thought about it like that. So I think that that's very cool. I could certainly say that that's the case with Monster House. Because I, I can't relate to these kids. I actually never even was allowed to go trick-or-treating. I think I was able to go one time, but my mom was deathly afraid of me going out and getting a shank in my apple or something. I don't know what her deal was. but uh, So even on that level, I can't really relate to the kids that are in this movie. But I, especially as an adult, can relate to some of the themes that were plopped in here and given a lot of airtime. So... There's a lot of validity to what I think you're saying. 
um, here for is to be validated, and I appreciate that. <laughs> that's why I bring people on. I just, we were talking about flattery before we got on here. That's my whole thing, so I'm glad that you're at least embracing it. I'll say the main takeaway that I got from this film when I was watching it, as an adult at least, I can't really honestly remember what I thought of it as a kid beyond that it was scary. But when I was watching it as as an adult, the central theme that came up in a lot of different ways and something that you alluded to a little bit earlier was loss and grief and the impact that that has not only on preteens, but on adults and the need to sort of accept things being lost and, and moving on despite those things going away. What was your like understanding of that theme in the movie in broad strokes talk to me about how you received that if you remember how you took it when you were watching it the first time or even just how you interpret it now i'll uh, definitely agree with you there that when first watching it as a as a youngin it all went over the head it was a fun romp that had some scares and uh really good artwork that i got obsessed with and pretty much that was it well, I yeah. want to ask you then, and we'll get back to sort of your interpretation of the theme as it plays out in the movie, but I think that's a pretty common sentiment that like when you were a kid, you would watch a movie that has maybe more mature or adult themes, and it just went over our heads when we were watching it the first time. You know, that's normal. That's understandable. But I, I guess I wonder like, why, why is it there? Why are those themes there that are a little bit deeper? Is it for the parents, the older siblings? Is it for us to explore later? I don't know that creators always had that in mind for like syndication or things being played again. So why do you think these more nuanced layered themes show up in kids' movies as often as they do? For one, I appreciate when they're there way more than a movie where it's not there. Because a movie, mm. when adult themes are not included and i'm just talking about general adult themes we're not talking about adult themes but yeah not but when when more <laughs> nuanced concepts and ideas are included in a film it makes it more enjoyable for everybody watching of course the kids have something to look at and to go like this is sick this is epic you know but it also has maybe like a teenager who's experiencing some of the things that are in the film and given an outlet to express those feelings or an adult in their uh, older years really thinking about everything that's kind of gone on with their lives and what is going to happen in their lives and something that they have to think about too when a movie like an animated movie has something that everyone could think about, it makes it a better movie. That's the main thing that the writer wanted to get across. Because, of course, there's the people who could just make stuff for kids and have that be that. You have their Despicable Me 4 on the list and just, boom, there you go, guys, enjoy it. But I feel like when people tell stories, and this is not unique to animated films, they have a main core message they want to get across. Whether that's believe in yourself, whether that's the world is screwed and you, there's nothing you can do about it, or the world is screwed and there is something you can do about it, there's something that the writer wants to get across. Monster House is a very personal story, and I think that it comes from 
the universal feeling of loss that we feel as just as a collective. No, I think you're completely accurate on that. And what I think the film does really well is documenting that, I guess, that first experience for a lot of us of reflecting on where we're at in our lives. For a lot of us, that happens around middle school, maybe early high school, where you're like, hmm. like, I've lived a little bit, not much, but it's all that you've ever known. So we see these three characters. Their names are, let's see, Dustin, James, DJ Waters. Charles Chowder, there wasn't a last name on Wikipedia, sue me if I don't if I don't know the one for that character. Um, and then there's Jennifer Jenny Bennett. We see those three characters gain a sort of sentence throughout the movie of like realizing like all what they've experienced so far and what's coming for them. And and for them that's like teenhood and in some ways maybe losing some of the previous things that they would have partaken in, like for example, a big plot in the movie is whether the two boys will go trick-or-treating together on Halloween that's coming up in a, about a day, I think, in the time of the movie. They're reckoning with whether that's something that people their age, which seems to be about 11 or 12, like, is that something that they still do? Is it appropriate? Or is that a part of their lives that they should let go of? And I think that the film does a really good job of like reminding us, especially older viewers, what that felt like and it, it gives us something to think about for our current lives i imagine maybe there's something for you whether it be like one of your creative outlets or something like that where you're like should i like is this mature like should i be giving this up is this something that isn't representative of where i'm at now you know what i'm saying no i i understand 100 percent, and i'm i'm really glad you mentioned it and that conflict because i feel like one of the biggest themes is about living in the present moment and um, not worrying about the past or, or let me rephrase not being so stuck in the past but also not being too worried for your future accepting the current moment for what it is and not letting it go too fast mm. and yeah because it's like it's true for the kids they're going through like a very tumultuous time and they're thinking about what's right and what's wrong, what's acceptable and what's not, especially with the, with DJ after like the film and after going through everything and like dealing with really difficult topics, like, especially for a kid, he just realizes that he shouldn't worry as much. It's not to, not to really care and just have fun while he can and I understand that, you know, sometimes I think about some of the stuff I do, like some of the videos I make, you know, if they're like stupid or just like, it's a dumb idea that I thought would be funny. Should I really be doing these things when I could be, I don't know, investing in stocks, you know, like maybe I could, but while I have the time and while I have the ability, I'm going to do stuff that makes me happy. You really shouldn't worry about what other people think or really worry about how people are going to view you and just do what you like to do. Yeah, especially because that opportunity may not always be afforded to you. These kids are going to get older. And yeah, by 17, people may really start to have an opinion about your trick-or-treating habits mm -hmm. if you're still going. I'm not saying that you can't or that that's something that you shouldn't buck up against, but times do change. Things change. You move on and there may not always be as much grace for the things that you enjoy or the things that you participate in. And so it's like, 
a mix of saying, okay, fuck that. Honestly, I'm going to do what I want to do. As long as it brings me joy and it's not hurting anybody else, there's no harm in it. And also realizing that this is a very particular time in my life where I am able to do these things and I'm going to do it while I have the time. It was cool to see these kid characters contend with that because that's something that I'm still really reckoning with myself in my life. Mm -hmm. Even with this podcast, thinking like, okay, I have this interest in popular culture and media and talking about it. Is this a good use of my time? Is this worthwhile? Do people actually even care about stuff like this? Shouldn't I be focusing more on my professional future? Like all these little things that come up in my mind. But I know maybe one day in the future, I won't have time to focus on this. Maybe I'll be building a family or starting a new job or like any number of things could come up, which may very realistically prohibit me from doing this. And so, yeah, I think it's just really meaningful to accept where you're at right now. And the fact that you are able to indulge in your your interests and the things that you love to do. And in the case of the characters, just going out on Halloween and trick-or-treating like the kids that you are appreciating that yeah, it's still your time to do that. So embrace it while it's still there. Straight up. As a creative, that feels like, that feels really stupid to say, you know, as a creative, but like. But you are that, <laughs> yeah. really. You are. Yeah. And it's something for me too, being like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm in that space too. It, it's super weird for yeah, me. Yeah, it's the biggest thing. The thing that gives me the biggest joy when I create something, when I tell a story, when um, I post something that someone likes, if I'm able to get a message across, if I'm able to get someone to think or experience something they haven't experienced, or to really contend with something like within themselves, or even just to have a good time, to have a laugh, to have an effect on someone is so moving. And it's really fulfilling. That may be the AI-generated dopamine rush, you know, from fucking social media, you know, that might be it. But I really feel like creating content and consuming content from people close to you is really, really fulfilling. There's a song that um, I tend to think of, I forget the name of it, but like, I know that there's a lyric in it that just sticks with me that says, am I crazy for thinking that the music that I listen to and the books that I read can be made by my friends. And it's like, wouldn't it be better for a world to be that way? Absolutely. Even if it's just small format stuff, even if it's like micro, micro influencer stuff, you know, consuming content from someone you know, and having a sense of community is really nice. And I think that what you're doing is a testament to that. Even if it doesn't go anywhere, I always tell myself, even if what I'm doing does not go anywhere, I know that I had a good time doing it. Even if I didn't touch millions of people, like I touched a few, that's what matters. God, that was so lovely. I couldn't agree with you more. I I think there is something really special about contributing to that creative space within your friend group or people that you become acquainted with over time. You know, even with your page on Instagram, it's cool, especially as I'm like working with you on developing this episode and just getting to know you better as a person. I noticed that bit of personal investment that I feel in like seeing you post something new and being like, hey, he's he's doing it. 
you know what I mean? That that thing that he's been wanting to do. It's really a privilege to get to see you create that. And I'm glad that, you know, after months of considering it and being on the fence about whether you wanted to, to post some of the content that you do, that you're sort of living in the theme of Monster House, which is just being present and doing what feels stimulating and engaging to you right now because that may change your your interests and your ways that you explore yourself creatively may change but because you honored what you're feeling right now in the present we have taco bhs and i think the world is better off for it so i'm really glad gotta commend you i tried to tangent that so hard but that you had a beautifully orchestrated, well-woven and constructed segue right back on target. Oh, God, I really do try. (laughs) It was a sincere moment as well. I was like genuinely appreciating your work and what you put out into the world and seeing if I could try to reel us back in. It's hard. It doesn't always work. (laughs) You know. Thank you for appreciating that. Now, I don't want to lose the theme of loss and grief because I think that that, like we talked about, that's the overarching concept or idea when it comes to Monster House. And I think there's a lot more to be said about it. But let's take a pit stop and talk about the genre that Monster House is sat within and like joins the canon of, because I think that in a way it lends itself to that theme of loss and things that we can't quite understand when we're in that preteen, prepubescent period of our lives. When we're starting to contend with some deeper ideas, but we're not quite ready yet to embrace them. Monster House is a horror film that was marketed to children, or marketed to families, I would say, but children are a part of those families. And I was a young kid at the time of this movie coming out. And that's something that I remembered to the time that I was watching the rewatch. I was like, I feel like this movie is going to be terrifying. And I'll tell you, it was. It still was very scary to my adult eyes. But I think that's curious since most children's media or media that's even partially aimed at children I don't see my neck of the woods. I don't engage with much children's horror, but I know that it exists. I'm thinking of Coraline, thinking of like Paranorman, things that like deal with spooky stuff. It doesn't have to be outright horror. So I know it exists, but I want to ask you, do you think at all that horror as a genre, as a way of telling a particular story, do you think that it lends itself well to the story that's being told in Monster House. Like, what do you think it adds to that formula? I think horror as a genre is a very unique tool to get across a message. And I feel like in lots of ways, stuff that is scary and stuff that is terrifying is used to contend with the unknown. I feel like kind of like going back, this this has been going back a long time when parents would would tell their kids that there's little gremlins that live out there that get children after dark. In a, in a very basic sense, it's to get across. Probably shouldn't play in the woods in the dark, you know? It's always like a tool to get a message across. And sometimes it's very fun. It's very, I don't know, it's very, it's really tough to say because we don't know uh, other animals' perspectives, you know, and whether they like to be scared. But I feel like it's very unique to humans that we enjoy stuff that is scary. We enjoy the macabre, at least like a portion of us, because, you know, I'm not too much into scary films. You know, I don't watch a lot of horror media. Stuff that is scary and disgusting and vile it can be very 
interesting because it takes some of the worst aspects of the human experience and us and puts it in the forefront. And it could be anything. A monster can represent insecurities. It could represent the evils of capitalism or the evils of communism. Anything. You could find something that represents it. And um, I feel like for kids that are interested in horror, things that are tough for them to understand being represented in a form that they can is really helpful. It could help um, put a face to something that they're feeling or could serve as a as a warning to to not do certain things. Monster House uses that to great effect. Oh, absolutely. Like I think for adults in horror, usually it serves as a medium to let us explore things that we would otherwise be uncomfortable with exploring. So it's not necessarily that we don't understand it. It's just that we don't really want to contend with those things. You know, like you were talking about the evils of capitalism or the evils of beauty standards, even. It allows us to like zoom out and see these themes brought to life in really like fantastical ways so that it feels less abrasive when we're dealing with that sort of stuff. But for kids, it may be more about starting to understand things in a way that feels maybe a bit more approachable in some weird way. But I like that in the movie, the kids, they are starting out by like being super terrified of the house and all they know is that it's alive for some reason and they have to figure out how to either get somebody's attention to it so that like they can get out of danger and like like this can finally be over and then eventually they get trapped in the house, spoiler alerts, and they have to figure out how to get out of it. But what I like is that what's modeled through the movie is what you're sort of getting at. Over time, the kids learn the, the nuanced truth of why this house is alive and why it responds to children in particular in the way that it does in a cool way that it starts to demystify the monster house, quote unquote. Like they understand the reasoning for why it's so horrific. And in that way, the thing that they didn't understand at one point feels a little bit more surmountable and manageable. And, and that's kind of what I'm getting from what you're saying about like horror's role in children's media, showing kids that this big bad, this scary thing that they thought just existed for no reason, there, there may actually be a reason there. With your understanding of why that is, you're maybe able to tackle it. And I think that is a good summation. That's not what I was going for, you know? <laughs> no, bad. no, but that is like, uh, I was just kind of like talking in general, but that is a, that's a very good way to put it, <laughs> you know? It makes things more accessible um, for kids. And that's, that's funny to say with like, you know, a big screaming, like, mishmash of like wood and like you know tiles and stuff but it makes something that's otherwise hard to get across uh, understandable and it shows that the biggest thing with horror and kids film is that it is something that can be overcome you know that's something that could be worked through it's true i mean there's some there's some monsters in real life that could never be like overcome insert whatever you want there but there's also plenty that we can do to surmount it within and of course yeah. in the film it's uh it's all external you know as aside from like the the scene with uh with nebercracker at the end but it's how they react to it and how they end up 
becoming familiar with it, understanding why it's there, like you were saying, and overcoming it. That's like, that's the important aspect. Yeah, that knowledge and that understanding comes with a power and an agency that I think these kids didn't understand until they experienced it for themselves. And I think that's hopefully a universal experience. As you just learn more through growing up, you realize that, you know, yeah, there's a lot of things that I don't know, but what I do know I can use to my advantage to eventually understand more. You alluded to Nevercracker, which is one of the only primarily featured adult characters in Monster House. And I think that they're really like the missing puzzle piece to why this story works. And I was wondering if you could give a quick synopsis about who that character is and their role in just like the the storyline of the movie, not so much as it relates to the themes, but just like in story, who are they? Nebercracker is the owner of a said monster house and the first scene of the film which is close to perfect that that opening scene he's introduced as the stereotypical get off my lawn you crazy kid type character and you don't really know much about him to start you just know that he is absolutely someone you've came across in your life whether that was actually a neighbor like that, you know, or just some other, like, uh, at least outwardly appearing horrid person that you just, like, don't understand why they're so awful. As you go through the film and they, the kids, discover more about him, you really get to move past the stereotype and move past the external and really see him for who he is. He was... He was a veteran, you know, in the in the in the U.S. forces and fell in love with someone from a kind of unbecoming area, you know, a carny, a giantess. Her name was Constance. And you, through the film, spoiler alert for this, I don't know, 12, 13, however many years old this is, he falls in love, you know, and decides to rescue her through a horrible accident lost his love and became a shut-in. And that's probably a story that's been told all over the place throughout time. You know, someone like finding their love, deciding to build and then losing everything and then um, completely losing their world and sense of self. Except that um, Nebercracker had to basically babysit a giant destructive house for the rest of his life. <laughs> that's, that's where the twist comes in. And... Nebercracker really serves as the impetus of the story because of his loss and because of how he went through it and how he is dealing with grief. Through the lens of horror and through the lens of a monstrous house, you really get to peer inside how grief can affect people. And and how would you describe his approach to channeling that grief and, and working through it or not. I would say for the majority of his life up until like the last parts of the film, it was a withdrawal, you know? He like uh, withdrew from his life. He became a shut-in. He closed himself off to everything. Like that loss was everything. And because of that, he was nothing. And uh, he dealt with the grief 
by creating a shell around him. Yeah, so literally that house became a bit of a, a cocoon for him because that was sort of like, I almost had a personified version of his wife, but his wife would be the personified <laughs> version of herself. Yeah. <laughs> the house became a representation of, of who she was to him. And I guess in a way, holding yourself up there in that house, like allowed him to feel like maybe she wasn't gone and like he could preserve this one last part of her. And that if he scared all these kids away from getting too close, maybe that would be his way of honoring the life that she lived, which most of us won't get that exact opportunity. I think all of us won't. <laughs> Monster houses don't exist, I hope. Yeah. But it's very con uh, sort of contrary to the way that most of us grieve and the ways that we try to honor people that have passed on. What is your way of sort of honoring either people that have that have moved on or parts of your life even that you have to let go of and move forward from? Never cracker chose withdrawal. What is your way for working with that? Uh, I'm going to say up front that I am not a saint. Like, I am not the best person at dealing with things, you know? And sometimes I do get withdrawn. Sometimes uh, I shut myself off. And honestly, I have a really hard time connecting with people. In terms of grief, you know, um, I feel like I've, um, like myself, have kind of not like acted like Nebercracker. I've never yelled at children, <laughs> you know. It's a good standard yeah, to say. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I've I've been withdrawn. The difficult thing, you know, and this is, you know, through through life and through death and through the different phases that happen in your life, it's difficult to let things go, you know? And I feel like it, it materializes in so many things. And I think for the longest time, like for me, it was knickknacks. Uh, previously mentioned assortment of trinkets downstairs. Like, I wouldn't throw stuff away. Not to say I'm like a hoarder or anything, but um, I don't know if you could tell, but I like having a whole bunch of shit around me. <laughs> yeah. Let me rephrase. I like having a whole bunch of stuff around me, you know? <laughs> I would hold on to things to help me remember. I can't remember a lot. So when I see something in a drawer or in a cubby or in a box tucked away, that reminds me of some of a time that's passed, like I wouldn't throw it away because it reminds me of a time that's passed. Only recently uh, have I even begun to try to move past that because you could hold on to as many things as you can, but those times aren't there anymore. And the people that you loved are not in the waking life. But that doesn't mean that they're gone. It doesn't mean that the, your only connection to them are those things. It's your memories. It's what you do have. It's the feelings that they evoked, you know, and moving past that, you know, being able to throw like that slip of paper from like 10 years ago away. Like, um, that's what I've been trying to do. And I've been getting there. I've been trying not to hold on to so many things. In a way, I, I really relate to Nebercracker. Well, I commend you for, like, first of all, realizing that this is a part of you and, 
like wanting to maybe work out of that and, and try to figure out how you can let go of things in a way that feels sustainable for you. So I really do uh, respect that because it's hard. It's hard to internalize that. It's easy enough to say, yeah, you got to let things go and move on and blah, 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 blah. But in practice, you're like, okay, I don't know what my attachment to this piece of paper is from 2009, but like it means something to me. And the thought of letting it go, you would think it's trivial, but it's anything but. So I definitely resonate with what you're saying. But what I'm reminded of when you were talking about that is like, to a lot of things, there's like a light side to it. And for you, I see that like your page on Instagram, especially like Taco VHS, there's an appreciation for like times gone by, you know what I mean? Especially as it relates to like video games and like old pieces of, of media and like formats of media, like with the, the tapes that you're working on right now, like that's the light side of that. You have an appreciation for it that like, I think a lot of us do, but we're, we're not either as inclined or as able to like capture that in the way that you do. So there's, there's a cool way to sort of channel that energy of like, maybe not wanting to let go of everything that it seems like you've tapped into. So I, I just think that's really cool. That that plays really well into that first theme we were talking about of not letting go of everything. The The important thing is not to dwell in the past with like things. It's to be present and to have appreciation for times gone by and especially for the time now. Oh, that's a really cool thing to think about now that you're making me wonder about it more like obviously not everything is meant to come with us and and be with where we are in the present but like what does it mean to repurpose something or or bring something with you in a way that feels like it honors who you are now you know what i mean not just for the sake of bringing it along and like holding you back but giving it new meaning in the present there's something to that too you know i definitely see that with this show for me talking about tv shows and movies that are years and years old at this point but using it as a vehicle to talk about where me and my guests are right now in our lives like that's cool and and i see some of myself in you and in your desire to hold on to things i don't know if you've got an issue i think i've got one too maybe we should both get help Maybe uh, the whole of humanity has some some thinking to do, <laughs> because I think it's a universal yeah. thing. <laughs> we need a group therapy session, the whole world. Let's, uh, let's talk it out. <laughs> As we wrap up this section of uh, talking about Nevercracker and his role in the story and things like that, something that I really enjoyed about the kids finally learning more about his backstory and the nuances of, of who he's become and how it was different from their initial perception of him. It documents that experience of growing up and getting to that age of like 11, 12, 13, and realizing how complicated just being an adult can be. It's, it's not as simple as like, oh, this guy is this sort of person or that girl is that sort of person. They could be that sort of person and they could also be something entirely contradictory to that. Those identities can both exist within that person. And I, I think we see those three kids realize that for like maybe the first time for them, but they see Nevercracker as a fully realized human that 
has made mistakes, but is also good in, in some ways and has good intentions and was looking out to protect these kids in some weird roundabout way. You see them reconcile all of those different parts of who he is. And I think moving forward, the hope is that they're able to apply that same way of thinking to themselves and their peers as they start to get older. What do you think that Never Cracker represents in terms of like growing up and what it means to be an adult? And how does that relate to your adult experience in particular? I think that Never Cracker shows the dangers of being rigid, of not adapting, and of just uh, passively accepting your life. In in a weird sense, he was kind of like a hero, you know, for trying to keep kids away from his, you know, kid-eating fucking house. <laughs> when it comes back to the grief and his loss, he stuck in his ways, and you could see that reflected in how the house aged when it was first built and to when he just let himself go to the thing he became just a broken down old just looks almost like ruined he showed how someone could be dead like while still living i forget where because my dad talks about it all the time but he he's read this book that talked about how to live you know and he was saying that when you're stiff and when you're rigid and you don't flex you're a student of death yeah. Whoa. when like you're flexible and you flow and you're you adapt and you learn you're a student of life and no matter like what you do even if you're still alive if you don't adapt if you don't change if you don't let new experiences come to you and you always assume things are as they are then like you're already dead you're just waiting for the time to come but you don't have to be. You don't have to be a student of death. Just like Nebercracker, he, he had inklings of wanting to, to grow and to move on, but uh, his house, you know, his grief just couldn't let him. And when he accepted DJ's hand, his, his peace offering, his idea of moving forward, like whether that angered his grief or it brought about survivor's guilt of, you know, am I worthy? You know, can I like move on from this? This is what I am. How can I go on when someone I cared about so deeply is gone with me? It's like I don't respect them. It's moving on from that to go with the present time. Becoming a student of life is how you live. All yeah. those years where Nebercracker didn't change, he ran kids out of his yard you know he shut himself in all of those years of wasted life doesn't matter the moment you wake up and realize you have a life to live thankfully he woke up and was able to epically fight his grief in a huge explosion you know with the help of three kids in a campy film <laughs> but he was able to move on it serves as um, a great story to see to really identify with and accept that we'll all have those battles like that. Yeah. It seemed like towards the end, there was something exciting about figuring out what comes next. Who knows how long that'll be? He was very old, guys. He, I don't know. He didn't look well, but it's a very hopeful idea, especially for those of us that are still truly young. There's a lot of time for us to embrace new ideas that allow us to take on more of life. I think that's why 
Monster House works so well. You know, you mentioned Polar Express earlier and how it's been like memed, you know, and like there's like screen caps from it. I haven't seen too much of that for Monster House, you know, except aside from that one funny scene, you know, with Skull like eating his candy or like Chowder getting hit in the face with a basketball. But that's what makes this film lasting. It's the blend of deep, like, human themes that go into so much, you know, about life and about death and and about moving on and just, like, appreciating life. And you have it mixed in with some funny fucking comedy and, like, a dreamlike setting and, like, the best character ever, Skull, you know, who's only there for, like, a minute and you just want more of him. There's so many factors in a film that could make or break it. Monster House is definitely campy. Like, it's a film of its time, but it gets so much right that it lasts far beyond its peers at the time. I couldn't agree more with you. This is an excellent coming-of-age film that documents how we all grow up and experience unfamiliar territory. We learn with each other and with the people around us that we can tackle the things that we at one point thought were insurmountable. In closing, what do you think the impact of coming of age films, both Monster House and other films or TV shows that you've watched over time, what do you think that impact has been in your life and just the impact on media in general, if you had to say? I think that coming-of-age films really speak to a moment of time that you could only have once. Like, uh, whether that's a singular moment, whether that's a month or a year of your life, there's only one time you really step into the world and see it for what it is and see your place in it. It's such a, you know, some some may say overplayed, there's so many coming of age films. One of my favorite coming of age films is like super bad, <laughs> you know, like there's so many ways to approach like this time in our lives that we'll never get again. I feel like it's a genre of film that doesn't really get old. It might just get dated. You could only like come to your age in the time that you live in, you know? So it's either you're going to be making a film that's trying to capture that moment of time, or it's going to capture this current time. So there's only going to ever be so many films that present the world as it did in the mid two thousands or in the, in the nineties or in the eighties. And you see it in Turning Red. It's a modern coming-to-age film based in 2000s, but it really captures that Y2K aspect of it. You know, and Monster House um, captures the time before, like, cell phones. And it's something that, you know, myself personally don't know if I could fully relate to in terms of the specific situations. But... Yeah. It does such a good job at getting that point across. And I think a coming-to-age film done right is timeless. Yeah. Yeah, there's a universality to that concept. It's inherently accessible. It never fails to resonate with us, even as we get older and we're not, like, literally in that point of our lives. I feel 
like I'm there almost immediately when I put on one of those movies. Yeah, I guess one last sentiment that I have for this movie is enjoy that last Halloween. You know what I mean? That last one where you say fuck the the judgment or the perception of what this looks like. I'm going to have this experience while it's still mine to have. However that relates to your life, Victor, or the audience, try to internalize that. That's something that I'm trying to do. Like, have that last Halloween and embrace that. I'm having that last Halloween this October, guys. Come on. Come on. Let's go do this. (laughs) I, I really do genuinely miss physical media, and I don't do it justice because uh, I know it still exists. It's maybe less than it used to be just in terms of like the sheer volume of it. But I think there's something missing. Those tangible items that you can hold in your hands and say, this movie, this TV show got me through a moment. Go out and buy some fucking physical media and get the best DVD cover you are ever find by getting the Monster House interactive animation wheel okay you're gonna go out to your (laughs) best buy to your blockbuster okay go to the last one and get a dvd (laughs) i appreciate you endlessly victor for coming on to retrospection connection and talking about this movie and giving me another opportunity to take a look at it because i just thought it was scary as a kid and so being able to look back and seeing that it's chock full of really relevant messages for me now as somebody in my early to mid 20s it was a surprise to me so thank you yeah thanks for having me it was a definitely a good show thanks for listening to my various ramblings and stutterings i very much enjoyed having this conversation I feel a kindred spirit in you because that's certainly my favorite thing to do at least top three so there we go radical all right well with that being said we are going to hop right into ad break so everybody stay tuned and welcome back to retrospection connection we're heading right into ad break all right question one What's something that you're doing for yourself that's making you feel like a kid again? I've been, um, well, I always go thrifting, right? Uh, That's nothing new. And that's probably uh, not even unexpected at this point. But I've been uh, thrifting a lot of board games, uh, specifically because me and my girlfriend got Bunko, which is a very simple dice game, like social dice game. And we played it and we loved it. And I've just been collecting a whole bunch of them whenever I see them. You know, different board games, different stuff, new things, Ticket to Ride, Skip Bow, just anything that looks decent at a thrift store and is less than five bucks. I've been getting it and trying it out. What's been your favorite so far? That's a really tough one. I have a really tough time picking favorites. Um, just because like, I love, uh, so many things in a genre or of like a, of a topic, you, you know, I'll definitely say one of my, one of my favorites has been patchwork. It's a two player only game where you do the, the most, uh, uh, stereotypically masculine thing you could do. And that is, uh, quilting and yeah, you're supposed to, you have a eight by eight grid, I think. And you're supposed to use buttons to buy uh, tiles of quilts that you put and you try to make the most complete quilt you can and have the most buttons at the end 
of uh, of the round. So it's it's a it's balancing time, money, and Tetris. Ooh, that sounds fun! Wow, that's cool. Like the world of board games is something that like I know practically nothing about. I know the basics. We got the Monopoly. We got Sorry. We got Scrabble. But I like didn't really consider that there's so many more games. Well, kudos to you for getting back into that archive and um, channeling your inner child in that way. I think that's pretty cool. Alrighty, question two. What's a lesson that you took from a piece of media, and that could even be like a video game or something of that sort, that you took with you, that you would consider to be like your favorite lesson? Uh, Not to be corny or to be repetitive, but um, that one album that I mentioned, uh, it was the second one, Waitsgiving by Fishboy. The last song... Um, is called Volunteer DJ. There's a the very last line. It's supposed to serve as the culmination of the entire album's message. It's written from the perspective of a volunteer DJ writing in a notebook and giving their thoughts on the events that have occurred. The last line is um, it's like a baby is crying in the room next to me. I write in my notebook as she gets laid to sleep. Someday you'll find the best songs of all time. Let they be priceless and worthless like all the best things. What is the gist of what they're trying to say there? Uh, what they're trying to say is that when you collect music, when you try to really peer out into other stuff, and like, it doesn't even have to be you know stuff that's really niche or anything just when you go out to record stores and you find like an album or you find a song or you find an artist they could be the best songs ever to you you know and they could hold so much meaning and be worthless at the same time and those experiences those that you know don't mean anything they're not worth thousands of dollars they're not like these moments in time that aren't how would you say worth a lot the meaning that you find in them is what makes them priceless and that's how you find very meaningful things yeah i've struggled with that for sure sometimes feeling like okay if this thing that i enjoy is not being enjoyed by the masses or there's not some sort of following that i can latch on to that maybe it's less important or meaningful than it actually is but I like that, sourcing the meaning through your personal attachment to it. All right, one more question. Let's see. What is something that you would tell your younger self, whether that be the version of you that watched Monster House for the first time or another younger version of yourself? What is important for them to hear from you right now? This is going to be an aside. I would never go back in time to change things, no matter what. You know, a complete aside. I know that's not what you're asking, but I think about I think about that when the questions like that arise. I wouldn't change anything about the past because that would change who I am and all my experiences and everything that's culminated to this, whether it be perfect or not, is me. And I wouldn't change a thing. But if I were to give some piece of advice to my younger self, which is some advice I should be listening to now, is to not worry as much you know just don't worry so much what do you think that would do for you if you were to allow yourself 
both when you were younger and really in the present day to just ease up a little bit? I think that it would just let me better appreciate the present moment. Just 100%. I agree. And, and what you were saying about like not changing a thing in your past because all the experiences that you experienced were like an amalgamation of who you are now. That's very powerful. I like that you mentioned that. Not only that, but when I was 12, I was probably just like sitting in front of the screen playing games like, oh, what? Like, I'm not going to not gonna listen to myself. <laughs> Come from the future going like, yeah, I'm gaming here. Come on. <laughs> They're like, you chose a goatee? That's That was our... That was our choice of, of facial hair. And you're like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Sorry. I, I like the go-to. That was, that was a, a compliment. But at 12-year-olds can be harsh. So that's the moral of this whole episode, guys. If you take nothing else away, kids can be mean. You should avoid them at all costs. Yeah. Thank you for watching and listening to Retrospection Connection. <laughs> well, with all of that being said, I think that's a lovely sentiment to um, ride out into the sunset of this episode with. Once again, Victor, you have been a, a light in, in this uh, virtual podcasting studio with me. I've appreciated getting a little bit of your insights, uh, both on the movie, on media, and just life in general. I think you're a very insightful, thoughtful guy, and I hope that there's an opportunity for us to get to know each other better. I appreciate that, man. I think you're uh, quite cool yourself and... Yeah, I know I'm a I'm a bit of a introvert, as a, one might say. But um, like uh, I don't, I'm not too talkative, you know. That's an aspect of myself I'd like to change, and you know I'll change it, you know, whether it's going to be at 50 or 60, I don't know. But I do appreciate that uh, you took the time, you know, and I think that this is going to be nice. I think it was fun, you know. I really like rambling, so thank you for humoring me. All right. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks. You too, man.